Amen. Let us pray. Let us go before the Lord in the time of prayer. Father, we first of all thank you for the grace of another Lord's Day, another time to worship you corporately as uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my prayer this morning is for those who may be in uh, despair. We thank you first for being able to celebrate the Lord's sacrifice by partaking of what symbolizes his body and his blood, his blood which was shed for the forgiveness and remission of our sins and for his body presenting himself as the only and sufficient sacrifice for our sins, bearing the guilt, the condemnation, the curse of sin in his body. And Lord, we thank you for that precious truth that we are called to remember as a church body. Lord, in our life in our sin-cursed world can sometimes seem full of anguish, and we are too prone to fatigue and discouragement. Well, sometimes we can groan only inwardly because, Lord, we live in such a fallen world that sometimes words fail us. Lord, this morning we desperately need the help and comfort of your Holy Spirit to endure the ravages of sin amid the trials of daily life. Lord, often we don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings of his own that are too deep for human words. And Lord, his prayers, the prayers of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, unlike our weak efforts to express the agony of our hearts, are always in accord with your perfect will. So, Father, we thank you this morning for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who prays for us constantly, who intercedes for us on our behalf. Lord, as your children, we thirst for you, and we trust in you deep down. Lord, we long to sense your presence. We need your tender mercy. We crave your he heavenly comfort. Lord, we stand in awe of your wisdom, your faithfulness, your, your perfect and providential timing. Lord, our experience confirms the testimony of your word. You have never forsaken us. So, Lord, with confidence, we echo the bold expectancy of the psalmist that we shall yet praise you. Lord, keeping those truths in mind, we approach your throne once again. Lord, we are both, you are both glorious and you are merciful. You are almighty and full of compassion. Lord, you are a righteous judge, but your mercies are extravagant. They are renewed every day. And Lord, we thank you for your mercies that you grant us every day because, Lord, we are so undeserving of them. Lord, we seek your blessed favor in our times of need. Although, Lord, we know deep down that we are unworthy because you have summoned us to come confidently to the throne of grace Lord we are fallen creatures 
and your glory is above the heavens. Lord, we are guilty of sin, but you are gracious. We are weak, but you are strong. We are needy, but you are rich in loving kindness. Lord, we are defiled, tainted by sin. But Lord, you are holy. Lord, we're without merit, but you cover us with your own perfect righteousness. Lord, we can't even boast about our weaknesses. But Lord, we thank you for the power of Christ that it may dwell in us. Lord, help us to be content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for Christ's sake. Because Lord, when we are weak, then we are strong. Lord, by faith we have been made dead to sin and alive in your holy presence. You have blessed us with love, which has never been known before. Love for you and love for one another. Lord, you have showered us with your grace and your glory. And Lord, you have withheld no good thing from us. Lord, you have brought us into fellowship of the church. You have supplied us in everything that pertains to life and godliness. So, Father, we pray this morning that this prayer may be real to us. That the answer to this prayer against despair, against despondency, may be a realization in all of our lives. Lord, I also pray this morning for brothers who are pastoring other churches here and around the world. Lord, we pray for the church of the faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for our brother uh, Sylvester over in Zimbabwe. I was communicating with him last night uh, through Twitter about the persecution that is taking place over there with Christians. They have a Marxist, tyrannous, tyrannical government. They ruin the country with corruption and pastors who speak out against the government are persecuted so Lord we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in other nations including brother Sylvester who's a faithful pastor over in Zimbabwe we pray also for brothers Josephus and Gobblejay in Liberia that you be with them also Lord as they deal with uh, corrupt governments as they deal with Christian persecution also and Lord we pray for brothers in our land in our area faithful pastors who are shepherding your flock that we continue to be faithful in our pastoral ministry that we continue to be faithful in shepherding the flock of preaching your truth in the midst of a culture who increasingly hates the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride we pray for brother Anthony and brother Bob and Carlton and Phil and Brother Curly and Brother Justin, Brother Steve, Brother Josh, Brother Cody, all these faithful men leading their churches. That you may protect them, that you may continue to bless the pastoral ministry, that you continue to bless 
their members that they may grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we come now as your people gathered as one before you with all our weaknesses and failings and needs. Lord, we know that we need you. We need the grace that has come to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we need to hear your gospel afresh. We need to hear your word afresh. We need the washing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit through the word. We need your illumination because our eyes are often dull and darkened. Lord, we don't always understand. We struggle. And so we ask now that you would teach us by your spirit through your word. Lord, we ask that you would move us, that you would bring us to light the greatness of who you are, our neediness, and that you would stir up faith that we might look to you and you alone. Father, I pray that you would remove from us pride and any thought that would hinder the reception of your word as it is in truth in the word of God. Lord, our world is so full of distractions from social media and from other things that we create as distractions. Father, I ask that you will help us to remove them as we seek to hear from you this morning. I ask, Lord, that in all of us now, as your people, that we will receive your word with hunger and thirst and gratefulness, with gratitude. Feed us, Lord, through the word of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. We're in the book of Ephesians. We are summarizing this book. So if you have your Bible, turn to the very first chapter of Ephesians. And what I'm going to do this morning is summarize this book looking at 25. We're going to look at them in short order, but we're going to look at 25 ways in which this book calls us to walk as uh, believers. And we're going to walk through this systematically, just looking through this book, just recalling what we have covered as we preach uh, 39 sermons in this book. Remember, one of the central themes of Ephesians is our identity in Christ. And just remembering that as believers, our true identity is in who we are in Christ, not in worldly categories not in your uh, diagnosis or not in your physical features, not in your skin color, not in, in your gender, whether you're male or female. Your primary identity is who God says you are in Christ. And that is what this book is about. Uh, the, the first three chapters, Paul establishes uh, some truths about who we are as believers. And then the last three chapters, chapters four through six, Talk about how we walk as believers with this new identity. So as we close out this book and as we look back at these truths. We want to see who we are in Christ and walk in who we are in Christ. The key words there are in Christ. So looking at the very first chapter of this book. Paul writes to the saints and the faithful. So what is the first thing of our identity as believers? We are saints. Saints meaning we are called apart. We are called out. We are separate. 
We're separate. We're different from the world. And saints is not based on how we act. It's based on who we are. And who we are determines how we act. Okay? So we're saints. We're the faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we are richly blessed. Verse three says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, excuse me, in the heavenly places. God, through his grace, has given all believers total blessing. Now, spiritual does not mean immaterial blessings as opposed to material blessings that you can see. But spiritual blessings refer to the work of God as he works in us as believers. God is the divine and spiritual source of all blessings. So we are blessed with all the spiritual blessings. We are blessed with the blessings that matter the most. And the blessings that matter the most are those which come from God. And those are the spiritual blessings that root our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ is not based on any material blessing. Not that material blessings are not important. You know, we work, we accumulate things, we buy things. We need things to sustain us. But that is not where our identity lies. If everything is taken away from us, if we're stripped of all material blessings, does that mean that we are less worthy? No. Why? Because we are blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Number three, we are chosen by God and we are beloved of God. Verses four through six, just as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So we are chosen and loved by God. We are chosen by God as his children. It is God who chose us. We did not choose God. It is God who loved us. We did not love him first. We hated God. Remember the catechism told, that, told us that. We hated God. Those who are, are, are outside of Christ, they hate God. But those of us whom God has saved, guess what? He set his love on us. So Paul tells us here, the word tells us, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us to adoption as sons we don't just become a son of God God has to adopt us into his family by salvation and that is a tremendous blessing that we have as believers that we are adopted into God's family that we become God because what he said his love upon us and because of that we are accepted in the beloved that is the one of, that is one of the most glorious promises in all of scripture that we are accepted in Christ what does that mean? We don't have to strive to be accepted by the world. We are accepted by God through the substitutionary death and righteousness of Christ. That is what matters. It doesn't matter whether the world accepts us or not. 
You have so many people out here living to try to be accepted by the world. They're living to be praised by the world. They're, willing, they're living to be approved of by people who hate God. If you're accepted in Christ, that's all that matters. Because guess what? None of those people you are accountable to in that last day. You're going to stand before God. You're going to stand before those people. It's more important to be accepted in Christ. Am I accepted in Christ? It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what my friends think. If I'm in Christ, that's all that truly matters. That's our identity as believers. I told y'all before, I, I, I lost friends when I became a Christian. I lost friends. Because my lifestyle changed. But I'd rather be accepted in Christ than be and walk among the ungodly and be approved of. We always talk about not compromising, right? Because when you compromise in one area, all bets off. You're going to compromise in other areas of your life. But our identity is one as being what accepted in the beloved and the beloved is in Christ. We are beloved of God because we're accepted by him. The next one. We are forgiven and redeemed. Verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We are forgiven. Unbelievers are not forgiven. They are yet in their sins. They can go to God. They can confess their sins to God, but he doesn't forgive them because he doesn't hear their prayers. He doesn't hear the prayers of the unrighteous. God doesn't hear the prayers of those who hate him, who haven't received his son, Jesus Christ. But guess what? For us as believers, what does the Bible say? In him, in Christ, we have redemption. We have been purchased. Our sins have been paid for. Christ redeemed us from sin. We have redemption through whose blood? His blood, not my blood, not someone else's blood, but the blood of Jesus Christ. And what is that redemption? The forgiveness of sins. I talk about this all the time. Man's greatest need is to have his sins forgiven. People who are outside of Christ, every day, every single day, don't think they aren't. They're walking around with that guilt. They're walking around with that condemnation. Why? Because the Lord is weighing on them. The Lord is weighing on their conscience. Because they're walking around and their sins haven't been forgiven. But as believers, our sins have been forgiven. In Christ. Not because of anything that we did, but because of what Christ did by shedding his blood. Next, number five, we are abounding in wisdom. Verse eight, which he made abound, made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. 
God has made his wisdom abound to us. God has given us spiritual understanding. God has given us spiritual discernment. We're able to discern true good from true evil. That is something that we have as being in Christ. That God has given us wisdom. To be able to know what's right from wrong. To be able to discern biblical truth from the fake false truths of this world. Next we have been made spiritually rich. Look at verse 11. Paul says here in him we have also entailed, obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will we have been made spiritually rich we have an inheritance and Christ is the source of our divine inheritance that we have we have a divine inheritance as believers that no one in this world can take from us. No matter who comes up against us, guess what? They can't take away what we have in Christ. What did Jesus tell the disciples in John, I think it was John 13, when he told them that he was going to have to go away? He says, I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be there also. That inheritance is already there. It's already promised. It's already a done deal. As believers, we already have that spiritual inheritance. And no one can take it from us. We are spiritually rich in Christ. Because in the end, friends, that's all that's going to matter uh, the most. Is that inheritance that we have in Christ, that eternal life. That God works all things according to the counsel of his will because he is all wise. The next truth is we are secure. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When God saves us, his own spirit comes to indwell the believer and he secures our eternal salvation. That's why when we were singing the song, he will hold me fast. I, I just, you know, tears begin to flow from my eyes. I take my glasses off because I'm thinking about the fact that God holds us. Even when our faith is failing, even when our faith gets weak, even when we're struggling in this life, guess what? God still holds us. We're sealed. And this seal of the Holy Spirit can't be broken by anyone. That is such a precious, it's, that should be a precious promise to all of us as believers. That God, when he saves us, he seals us by his spirit. No one can take us out of his hand as Jesus said in John 10 about his sheep he holds us in his hands and no one can pluck us out why because we are sealed we're sealed our eternity is certain 
not because of us. We can't keep ourselves. That's why we can't save ourselves. If we're responsible for our salvation, that means we're responsible for keeping our salvation, and we can't possibly do that. It's God who saves us. In him you trusted. In whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Next truth. We are alive with new life. That's in the second chapter. Now we know at the beginning it says he made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. But look at verse 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in which I'm sorry, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we have been made alive. As believers, we're not spiritually dead. God has made us alive. The unbelievers are spiritually dead. But when God saves us, what does he do? He brings us to spiritual life. That is a great and precious truth. We are the objects of his grace. We saw that again in verse 7. That in ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When God saves us we experience his endless and limitless grace. Because it is only by his grace that we are saved. Which is the next point. What else? In our identity. We are saved by grace through faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Whose grace? God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited unearned favor. In other words. We don't deserve to be saved. None of us are worthy candidates of salvation. We can't look at ourselves and say, Lord, I'm worthy of you saving. I'm, I'm just that good. <laughs> no, you're not. You're just that evil. And you have to rely on the grace of God to save you. You're just that wretched. You're just that lost. You're just that dead in your trespasses and sins. And you need salvation to come from another, not from within yourself. We are saved by his grace through faith. And that faith is something that God gives us. God grants us the faith to even believe. And that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith. The faith to be saved is a gift that comes from God. He says, and that not of yourselves. This is part of our identity in Christ that we're saved by grace. We know it in our hearts. It wasn't me. There wasn't anything worthy in me that, that, that God saw. He saw the work of his son on my behalf. Not I, but Christ. 
that we were saved. Also, because of this truth, we are God's masterpiece. Look at Ephesians 2 and 10. Because God saves us, we're saved to good works. For we are his workmanship, his work of art. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what kind of works? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember, good works do not produce salvation. Good works are a, a, a result of salvation. So we are God's masterpiece. That's what it means, his workmanship. Believer, you are a masterpiece. That's something that you can hold precious in your heart. No matter how you look, no matter how you feel about yourself, guess what? You're still God's masterpiece. Isn't that great? Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? You're God's masterpiece. Not about feelings. Not about how you feel about yourself. It's about who you are in Christ. And that's what we're talking about. That's why we're summarizing all of these truths that we preached about uh, the last few months. Next. Truth. Is that we are one with God. Look at verses 13 through 18. Excuse me. We are one with God and with all Christians everywhere. Verse 13 through 18. It says. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off. Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Enmity is hostility. That is the law of commandments containing ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off who are Gentiles and non-Jews and those who are near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father so what truth do we find in here that we are all one with God all believers everywhere are one with God all of us no matter where a believer is we're all one you meet a Christian from an Eastern European country and they come and visit our church and they profess their faith in Christ. Guess what? That's your brother or sister in Christ. They may not even speak our language. But if they come in as a brother or sister in Christ, guess what? We greet them as such. If we go over there and greet them as believers, guess what? They'll greet us the same way. Why do you think you all may not notice this, but a lot of missionaries that are overseas, a lot of Christians that are uh, soliciting prayers from be uh, believers around the world, very few of them ask for things. 
Most of them ask for what? Prayers. Why? It's a reason behind that. They know as we should know. That no matter how far apart we are as believers. We all serve the same God. We think of prayers in proximity. Like someone who's close to us. That's why you know I've, I've, I've communicated with. Uh, Brother Sylvester. Who was over in Zimbabwe. Which is over in. The con- on the continent of Africa uh, eight hours ahead of us and, and uh, you know Brother Josephus and Gobbler have been to our uh, church before uh, back in I think 2016, 2017 around that time uh, they both when they came over here to the states uh, to uh, receive support uh, they both came and you know we welcomed them into our church and some a few other churches around also but they are, they are brothers in Christ although they're in another country on a different continent uh, six time zones away but we what, what, what makes us the same is that we're all in Christ that is what makes the body of Christ different from every other fake community that is out there we're united by a common savior we're united by the same Lord God has made us all members of his body as all Christians, we're all one with God and we're all one with other believers. Next truth, 13, we're members of God's intimate family. Verse 19 says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, I just basically said this point, with the saints and members of the household of God. Man, praise God for whom our blessings flow. We're one with all believers. The household of faith. Next. Going to chapter 3. We are empowered. By God. Beyond our imagination. Look at verse 20. Of chapter 3. Paul says. And this is a doxology. Now to him. Who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we may ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. To him, to Christ, be glory in the church. Rather, to God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. A blessing. What is the truth in here? That we are empowered beyond our imagination. How are we empowered? By the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He says he can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. What is the power that works in us? The power of the Holy Spirit. God is able to do exceeding abundantly by means of his spirit. God has the power to save souls. God has the power to break enslaving sins that people are in. God has the power to transform lives. That is the great power that that God has. And God empowers us as believers to to live this Christian life. 
And because of this, we're able to glorify God. The next truth that we have is our identity. Is that we serve one God. Our God is not divided. Our God is not. He has a name. You know, I think about uh, I, was, I was going back to the book of Exodus, the third chapter, when, uh, you know, God had commissioned Moses. To go down to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let the people go and also to tell the people that he came to set them free. And Moses asked God, I think this is around the uh, 13, 14 verse of uh, Exodus, the third chapter. Moses asked God, Lord, who should I say? Sent me. What is who, who should I tell them your name is? God said, say to them, I am that I am. Tell them I am that I am. I am who I am has sent me. Why is that significant? God was saying that tell them the eternal. All knowing, all encompassing, self-sufficient God has sent me that God has a name his name is not the man upstairs his name is not the higher power his name is not the big guy in the sky God has a name I am who I am the all-sufficient the self-sufficient the eternal God who coexists with the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. The one who created everything and said, it is good. And when he made man, he said, it is very good. This is the God whom we serve. As our identity in Christ, we serve one God. So Paul says in Ephesians 4. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all in all and through all. This is the God we serve, the God of all, the God who accomplishes all, the God who is all, the God who created all, the God who sustains all. That's what makes us as Christians different. Our God has a name. Our God's name means something. That's why God gives himself names in scripture. That's why he refers to himself as king of kings and lord of lords. That's why he told Moses, tell Israel, I am who I am. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8 chapter before Abraham was, I am, meaning I always existed. There was never a time when I was not. And that's why they picked up rocks to stone him because they accused him of blasphemy by saying that he was God when he said, I am. Our God has a name. And he is the one to whom we worship in our identity. We don't worship the gods of this culture. We don't worship the gods of this world. We don't worship likes and shares and, 
and retweets and views and, 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 and social media fame. We don't worship those things. We don't worship our phones and we don't worship the praises of people because they're fickle, fake, and phony. They lead to misery. They lead to emptiness. Do you all know that the world always over promises and under delivers? What is it that I say all the time? If you try to build a world while at the same time denying the God who created it, it will not work because it cannot work. It's going to lead to a life of misery. Why are people walking around miserable? Because they're trying to build a life without God. They're trying to build a life without not just the mental ascent to God, but without worshiping God, without humbling yourselves and serving this God and obeying this God, obeying his commandments. They're trying to build this world of theirs. And they keep failing and they keep falling and they keep trying all these things. Why? Because they're putting their identity in a world that doesn't have God in it. Of a life that doesn't have God in. Of a life that doesn't honor God. And it becomes insanity. What do they say the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It's not working, but you keep doing it. But as believers, guess what? We serve the one true God. As Paul tells us in this chapter. Another truth in here. In the main section in verse 4, chapter 4 rather, from verse 11 all the way down to verse 24. We're not going to read all of that. But what we see is that we are recipients of the gift and gifted men, excuse me, that perfect us in the work of ministry, that help us to grow in Christ, grow in spiritual maturity. We are recipients of that. We're not, we're not left to our own. We're not left to our own devices to grow in Christ. God gifted the church with gifted men to shepherd the flock of God to help us to grow in Christ to edify the body of Christ as it says here in verse 12 until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro and cared about by every wind of doctrine so as believers in Christ as having an identity in Christ we ought to be part of a body of Christ We grow, we learn together. We grow together as believers. I could never grow mature as a believer outside of the context of the local church. I would have never grown in the faith if I isolated myself from the church. And just kind of did the whole long range of thing and just kind of went out on my own. I would never have been able to do that. But because I am in Christ, because I'm part of the body, guess what? I can mature in Christ and we do it together. That is part of our identity as believers. 
that we be spiritually mature, that we're not deceived by the trickery of men, as Paul says. But instead, we speak the truth in love to one another. And that we may grow up in all things in Christ. That every believer in Christ does their part. But Paul says every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. You know what? The Christian community is the only true community that exists. Again, because we have one God, we're under one spirit. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And because of that, guess what? We serve each other. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. We do that in community. God made us for community. God never created man to function in isolation. If so, he would not have given Adam Eve. What did God tell Adam? It's not good to man to be alone. Right before that, this is in Genesis, the second chapter. God gave Adam dominion over all the animals. God told Adam to name all the animals. The birds, you know, the animals above, the animals on the earth, and the fish of the sea. God gave Adam dominion over them. God told Adam to name all these animals. So Adam out in the garden had all these animals around him. All these animals. But what did God say to Adam? It is not good that man should be alone. But he had all the animals around him. He had all the birds. He had all the, 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 the creeping and crawling animals. He had all the animals in the, in the sea. He wasn't alone. Yes, he was. He said, God told him it, it's not good that man should be alone. But that he made a suitable helper for him. A helpmeet, as the old translations say. God made another what? Human. He gave him Eve. Flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. What's the general principle behind that besides the fact of uh, marriage and companionship? The other general principle behind that is that man is not meant to be isolated. God created us and made us for community. Do you know people die because of loneliness? Do you know that's a thing? You know, when we go to the nursing home, there are people that are so happy to see us. They see the workers all the time. But they want to see other people. They want someone to come into their room and visit them and pray with them and, 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 and talk with them. Why? Because God made us for that. People can get lonely and they just wither away because that human touch is not there so as believers guess what we are the same way our identity in Christ is within the context of the church body being with each other <laughs> we have short memories but remember just three years ago when we had stopped meeting for a few months Some of y'all probably don't remember, but y'all were ready to start back meeting in person. Do y'all remember that? Like, we need to start back meeting, Pastor. Why? Because we miss being around each other. It only took three months. 
We miss being around each other. We miss that fellowship. <coughs> we miss seeing each other's faces, masks and all. We just miss being around each other. Why? Because that's what God made us for. That's what God worked in us when he saved us. That, that, that need for fellowship with each other as believers. That's how we learn and that's how we grow together as believers. You can't do it in isolation. You can't do it watching pixels on a screen. No, you do it by being in fellowship and communion with other believers. So our identity, Paul talks about this in these uh, verses in the middle part of this chapter. The next thing about our identity is that as recipients of Jesus Christ, he teaches us to walk in new life. Verses 20 through 24. But you have not so learned Christ. Because we don't walk as the Gentiles walk. I'm looking at the positives and not the negatives here. Verse 17, we don't walk as Gentiles walk. We went through that. You can listen back to that sermon. I think it was a good one. We don't walk as unbelievers walk. But rather, we have not so learned Christ. Verse 20, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Christ Jesus that we put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness so what is our identity in Christ we walk in the newness of life Christ teaches us to walk in the newness of life. Christ teaches us to put out the old man. When we're saved, we're not going to automatically stop doing everything that we did when we were unsaved. But there will be a progression. Remember, always remember this. Believers struggle with sin, but we don't live in sin always a difference a true believer does not live in sin a true believer doesn't keep on sinning look at 1 John 2 uh, John will tell you that a believer does not keep on sinning we don't do it because by golly I'm just going to do it anyway no that's not the believer's attitude the believer says Lord help me to put this sin aside Lord help me to not give in to this temptation to this sin Lord help me to overcome this sin that's the believer's struggle Paul talks about it in Romans 7 so walking in this newness of life requires putting off the former man the old man being renewed in the spirit of our mind and putting on the new man that is our identity in Christ we don't rest comfortably with sin in our life we pray and pray and struggle and plead with the Lord. And guess what God does do it? Some sins may be enslaving, but we still fight against it on our knees. And we fight against it by being sanctified by the word of God. And by having other believers to pray for us with that. Our next identity as believers is found in verses 1 through 2. 
of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as their children. What is our believer? What, what is our standing as, as, as believers? We are to be imitators of God. John MacArthur said the Christian has no greater calling or purpose than that of imitating his Lord. That's what sanctification is growing up, growing in likeness to God. As Christians, with each passing day, with each passing week, with each passing month, with each passing year, we are growing more and more like our Lord. You know the wonderful thing about children? And also the terrifying thing about children is that children imitate the adults in their life. Amen? Sometimes they imitate the bad things and, and we're like, oops, well, they got it from somebody. You know, you see a little two-year-old child, all of a sudden a little curse word comes out their mouth, and it, it seems like it's cute. But you're like, they heard that from somebody. They heard that in conversation. Because children learn by hearing. Now, those auditory skills, they, they hear and then they speak. They don't have the maturity to know, oh, I'm not supposed to say that word. <laughs> I'm not supposed to dance like that. You see little girls out there gyrating and all that stuff. Nobody should be doing it, number one. But you see little two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old girls, elementary age girls doing that stuff. You're like, where they learn that from? They're imitating someone. As Christians, as children of God, we are to imitate our Lord. We're not to imitate the world. There should be a distinction between the Christian and the world. We're not to love what the world loves. Because what the world loves is always going to be against God. We should hate what the world loves. We are called as saints of God to be imitators, imitators of God. Growing in likeness to him while serving him. Because our life is designed to produce godliness. Not perfection. We're not going to be perfect, but our life should be exemplifying godliness, which was modeled by our Savior. We ought to imitate God. We have to become more and more like our Heavenly Father with each day. The next fact of our identity is that we are to walk in love. How does that look? We walk in love because uh, Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So how do we walk in love? We show biblical love to everyone, even our enemies. We're self-sacrificial. We show care and concern for people. We correct people. We admonish them. We encourage them and we warn them. That's how we walk in love. The world, don't let the world tell you what love is. The world says love is love. Love is not love. The world never defines love. Love has boundaries. 
Love has a standard. Love has a source. The source of love is God. First John 4 tells us God is love. Not that love is God. God is the source of love. It is God who defines love. It is God who tells us what love looks like. And as believers we ought to be imitators of God in love. By walking in love. Next in verse 8. We are to dwell in the light. Verse 8, 5, chapter 5. For you were once darkness. That means we walked in darkness. We were of darkness. The character of the unconverted life that was void of truth and virtue. That was devoid of biblical morality. We were once darkness, but now we are what? Light in the Lord. And what do we do as a result of that? The end of verse 8. Walk as what? Children of light. We are not to walk in darkness. We were once darkness. We, have, we had dark thoughts. We had dark imaginations. We liked dark things. Things that represented sin and, and rebellion and, and evil. Before Christ, we wanted those things. We liked those things we approved of those things but now that we're in Christ now that our identity in Christ what do we do instead we walk in light we dwell in the light people should not see the Christian and see darkness our presence should be refreshing to people our presence should be a blessing to people as believers. When we walk in the room, the room should light up. Because that light, Jesus said, We are the light of the world. A city that's set on the hill cannot be hidden. When we come around, people should look at us as a blessing. Man, I'm, they may not say, Man, I'm glad to see, I'm glad Brother Darrell is here. It's just so good to see you. They may not say it out loud, but they just say it in their heart. Like your, your presence is just a blessing to people. Why? Because they see the light there. They're, what, what are people attracted to? They're attracted to that light. Darkness repels. Darkness deceives. Light brings in. Light shines. Light illuminates. Light reveals. Our identity in Christ is that we walk in the light. We don't walk in darkness. Amen. We walk wisely in this world. Verse 15 through 17. See then that you walk circumspect. The circumspect means wisely. Not as fools but as wise redeeming the time. For the days are, are, are evil. Therefore. Verse 17. Do not be unwise. But understand what the will of the Lord is. We walk wisely in this world. We don't walk as foolish people. We walk like we got sense. <laughs> in other words, okay? Our world doesn't have sense. 
I mean, just look at what's going on in our world. Look at look at what people are believing in this world. Look at what people are pushing in this world. It doesn't it, it doesn't make sense. I'm not getting to all this because I, I I talked about it in all my sermons that you can go back and listen to, but we talked about all the foolishness that's in this world. So as Christians, we ought to walk wisely, circumspectly, being aware of what's going on around us. And you know what? We're going to sound different. We're going to be countercultural because the culture has gone mad. Because we're walking wisely. Next, we walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God. Verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, I got into that about wine and, and alcohol drinking and everything. I listened to the sermon on that. But the big point of this passage is to be filled with the Spirit. We walk as those who have the Spirit of God within us. Every Christian is indwelt and baptized by the Spirit at the time of salvation. We don't have to have a second baptism of the Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt with, I'm going to say that again. Every Christian is indwelt with the Holy Spirit upon salvation. So since we're filled with the Spirit, when Paul says rather be filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit means living in the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living according to the Spirit. And what is one of the roles of the Spirit? He reveals the truth of God to us. He reveals Christ to us. So we walk in that truth. Next, we as believers having our identity in Christ we have all the resources to live a Christian life that's found in verses 21 through the first part of 6 and 9 as our identity in Christ we know how to be good husbands and wives we know how to be good children and parents we went through those passages also. We know how to be good employees. We talked about that. God equips us as believers, our identity in him. We have the playbook on how a biblical marriage should look. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husband. Children obey your parents. Parents don't uh, exacerbate your children or make them worse. On the job, employees, Work as to the Lord and not to man. And those who are bosses, how you ought to treat those who are under you. God lays all that out for us. In the marriage, in the home with our children, and in the public square in the workplace. We know as believers how we ought to live in all those contexts. It's different from what the world says. We talked about how marriage is not just a piece of paper. Or you don't need to... To, to be married to show that you're committed to somebody we talked about that in this uh, in this passage when we preached on it and how that's a lie from the world and we talked about the obedience part with children and their parents and also how we ought to be on our jobs so God has shown us how to do that as believers 
And then the last thing we talked about is the armor of God. That since we are in Christ, God has equipped us to withstand our enemy. Our enemies in the flesh and our spiritual enemy who is Satan. And what has he done? He's, he's given us what? An armor. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We talked about that. Put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You rest not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take into you the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. God has equipped us as believers to withstand the attacks of Satan, to withstand the attacks of our enemies. The enemies of the cross, the enemies of the church. God has not left us defenseless. We have an arm of God. And what is that armor? Okay? The belt of truth. We have truth. We have righteousness, righteous living. We have the gospel. We have the shield of faith. We have salvation. We have the word of God. And we have prayer. God has given us, God has equipped us as we are in Christ. He has given us everything necessary to persevere in this Christian life, to persevere through all the discouragements, to persevere through all the despair that we may experience and encounter. Guess what? We have God's weapons. It can't be our weapons. That's why Paul says in the 10th verse, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Why? Because we can't do it. Our flesh will fail. Our flesh is weak. We give up. We give in. We're not built for that. We have a God who loves us, who saved us, who adopted us into his family, who has made us accepted in Christ. He has equipped us to be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. The devil is not more powerful than God. The devil is not equal to God. There's no match between the devil and God. The devil is already a defeated foe. His destination has already been determined. He can do nothing more than what God permits. That's why when he came to Job, he considered Job. He had to ask God for permission. He couldn't just go do it on his own because the devil is God's devil. Satan is under God's thumb. So God has equipped us. He's equipped us. He's equipped us with the truth, the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, the truth of God's word. This right here is truth this is the only truth that exists in this world any other truth that you stumble across came from this the word of God remember these are the very words of God 
If you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. We have the truth against the enemy, and it's the word of God. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So I'll leave you with this. We have an identity that was given to us by God that is sustained by God and that will bring us to the end by God. Christian, take your roots in your identity in who you are in Christ. That's what matters the most. That is what's going to sustain you. And that is what's going to matter in the end. Who you are in Christ. Who God says you are. What God has called you to do. How God has uh, called you to live. And how God has equipped you to live. And we do it all to his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, the truths that we heard, I didn't exhaust them. There's so many more. But Lord, we thank you for what your word says about us. We thank you for the identity that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for these precious truths. Lord, I pray that anyone who hears this in here or on Facebook or we hear the podcast when it's published, Lord, that when they hear this, if they're unbelievers, that they repent of their sins, turn from their sins. Lord, give them the faith to believe in Christ, that they may be saved, that they may be part of the saints and the faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may be accepted in the beloved, that they may be adopted in your family. And all the other truths that we read, Lord, and looked at this morning will be theirs because of you. And Lord, lastly, help us to walk in who we are in Christ. That matters above all. Help us teach us to our children. The most important thing is who they are in Christ. Not who they are in the face of their peers or who they are on social media. Lord, thank you for your word and your truths. May you bless and encourage the saints and bring sinners to a saving faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Yeah.